Welcome to Inspiration Rising. My name is David Trotter. I'm a business and life transformation coach dedicated to inspiring women and the men who support them to rise up in life, love, and business. Now, if you're a parent and you're trying to figure out how to sustain their lives and cause the least psychological damage to their little brains and maintain your own sanity in the process, I've got a great book for you. It is called Rage Against the Minivan, Learning to Parent Without Perfection by Kristen Howerton. It's available on Amazon right now via the link in our show notes. The great thing is it just came out available and today I get to introduce you to the author herself. Kristen is not only the author of Rage Against the Minivan, but she's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She became the mother of four children within four years via birth and adoption. And she's the founder of the uber-popular blog, Rage Against the Minivan. She recently launched a podcast. She's the co-host of Selfie, and it's dedicated to exploring the mind, body, and spirit aspects of self-care. Now, I'll tell you, in all transparency, I first met Kristen and her then-husband, Mark, around 1999, when Mark and I were both pastors on staff at the same church. And our lives have intersected here and there Uh, But frankly, uh, I've mostly followed her growth as a blogger from a distance, although my daughter did babysit their kids on occasion, okay? I'll I'll just take that as a little claim to fame. What am I talking about? There's nothing there. Uh, I tell you all that to say that Kristen is an amazing writer who shares her heart and soul and all the challenges in this book, and my hope is that this interview gives you just a taste of that book so that you'll ultimately go out and buy it. I will tell you this interview was recorded prior to the events that have happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd, as well as all of the protest and movement that's... So we didn't dive into that, but we did talk about race, as well as all sorts of other subjects, including taking pictures of kids during meltdown, divorce, spirituality, all the things, okay? You're going to love it. Now, before we jump into the conversation, I want to remind you of two things. One, share the show. All right, if you love The Inspiration Rising, you listen to it on a regular basis, you listen to this episode, you think, oh my goodness, so many, so-and-so would love to uh, listen to this, take a screenshot on your phone and just text it to them. Tell them to look for Inspiration Rising on their favorite podcast app. Also, as a reminder, I send out daily inspirational text messages via the name, so cheesy, Inspo Text. Yes, Inspo Text. I send it out every day. If you want to be a part of that and receive it, of course, you can unsubscribe at any point. It's 949-401-6090. All right, just text me right now, 949-401-6090. You can say, hi, Dave. And then it'll respond and you'll add yourself as a contact and we'll be BFFs. It'll be just amazing. Let's jump in to my conversation with Kristen Howerton. Well, Kristen, thank you very much for taking some time to hang with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's fun to chat with you, Dave. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, Your book is an interesting journey for me because I feel like I you know, have known you from a distance for a lot of years and yeah. to see you kind of share a behind the scenes of your family. Um, first of all, just thank you for your vulnerability and authenticity in that. Obviously I would expect nothing less, but um, uh, man, I just felt like, Oh, I want to give you a big hug. 
uh, <laughs> after uh, the journey that you took me on through your book. Um, first of all, let's talk about this term for those who don't know you, Rage Against the Minivan. What is that all about? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's a bit tongue-in-cheek because I do drive a minivan, um, you know, but for me, it was just that idea of like, when I became a parent, I didn't want to lose myself to this sort of, you know, prototypical mother in a minivan driving to soccer games. Like, I really had a lot of fears around my identity being lost as a mom. And and for me, you know, buying that minivan felt like that sort of last bastion of, like, self-care, personal. I always joke that my minivan sits in my driveway covered in remnants of my self-esteem. But, you know, the real the reality is... It wasn't the minivan or or any external things, you know, whether it be not getting a mom haircut or, you know, still trying to dress like I did before kids or, you know, it, it was really an inside job to um, figure out my identity as myself and also as a mom that, it, you know, that was really more of a spiritual journey and an emotional journey than it was making sure the optics looked the same. Mm-hmm. One of the things you talk about early on in the book is being a good enough mom. You call it later on the world's okayest mom. <laughs> uh, tell me, obviously, that's a quite a journey to get to that point. And I think a lot of moms feel uncomfortable maybe saying that or, you know, but maybe there's a desire deep down. Uh, there's a lot of moms that are listening that probably feel like they are just the world's okayest mom. Why Why did you give your permi- yourself permission to take on that moniker. Yeah. And I think, you know, every mother's journey is different. And I definitely have friends who kind of arrived at, I'm okay with being okay. The minute that baby, you know, entered their world. Um, I, and many of my friends, um, that wasn't the case for me. I think that I had just been so socialized through my life to perform well. And that came from my childhood, mm-hmm. came from my Christian community. Um, and then I was, as you know, because we were at the same church, I was a pastor's wife for a long time. And for me, um, it just felt like I needed to be more than okay. Like I needed to be performing and liked and good at things. Mm. Um, and, you know, I I went through school like that. I, you know, I liked getting good grades. And then when I got into a job, I liked getting good performance reviews. Mm -hmm. Um, I really didn't have a sense of my own value and self-worth outside of external validation. Mm -hmm. So to learn to let that go as a mom, which I think you have to, there's no, there's no external validation (laughs) coming to you as a mom, um, in the younger years, you know, I mean, sure. When as adults, you may get some lovely sentiments from your children showing the full gratitude of the job you're doing, but you know, after they have kids though, I know, right? Maybe, I don't know. I mean, my, my kids have shown some, you know, shown me some kindness in their teen years. But, you know, um, at the end of the day, you're not getting a cookie or a pat on the back or a performance review or a grade for parenting well. And um, I was still kind of looking for that, at, you know, in those early years, trying to just do it all right, make sure I, you know, have them in the right clubs. And am I preparing them for the potential for a scholarship? And am I... Um, you know, 
am I feeding them the right organic foods? And, you know, am I making their baby food homemade? And there was a lot when I was parenting, and I'm sure this is still true for, you know, parenting younger kids, there was a lot of like performative motherhood, and almost competitive motherhood, you know, you picked a side and and you, you know, you baby wore all the time, or you, you know, showed everybody how much you used cloth diapers. And, and it, you know, it was, it was a big thing. It was a big identity. It wasn't just like a little choice, you know, mm-hmm. like, it was like an identity. And um, I got wrapped up in that, you know, I got wrapped up in doing it right. And that was exhausting, <laughs> really exhausting. And also, I just feel like I came to learn, you know, by the time I had my fourth child, it's also just futile, like, they're just gonna kind of turn out how they turn out, you know? <laughs> I mean, with a fourth kid, like, there's no, like, trying to do things right. You're just trying to swim and survive. And yeah. you, you, you're you forced to, to chill out a little bit. Yeah. It's, uh, at that point, it's just sustaining life, keeping, yeah. keeping them alive and fed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you take us on the journey of miscarriages and infertility and adoption and lots of twists and turns. One of the things that you shared that, was so poignant to me. Um, my wife and I have experienced uh, three miscarriages at different points in time. And you said in the chapter, it's entitled Ready, Set, Nope. I can't refer to the chapter numbers because there are none. I know, not in the advanced reader copy. It's so annoying. <laughs> oh, so there are in the real... The actual there will be numbers in the actual book. Good Lord. I know. Ready, Set, Nope, How to Fail at Motherhood Before You Even Start. You write, this is a part of the unspoken pain of infertility. No one means to drop you as a friend, but the statute of limitations on sadness and moping eventually runs out. I know that um, there are many people that are listening that have had, you know, those challenges of whether it be infertility or miscarriage combination. Um, How did you navigate that time of going, gosh, I'm just, I am so sad and I want to talk about it. But yet it seems like there, there's only so much that people can listen over time. Mm-hmm. Even what words of encouragement would you share today to maybe people that are listening that are in that situation? Well, I will say, you know, one thing that was unique to me, but I think is also um, a, the case for many women. Um, I am really, really afraid of being a burden. Like that, that is a fear that is overblown for me. And probably unrealistic, um, and I can't quite put my finger on where that where that um, developed. Although I have some theories, you know, but um, I just really didn't want to be a burden. And the result is sometimes people will, were pulling away from me because naturally people do pull away from grieving people. I mean that that's just the truth. It's the sad right. truth. Um, you know, if, if you've ever walked a friend through some really hard, hard stuff, there is that sort of flight to health. Like I, I can't, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. It, it yeah. really does take a lot of loyalty and tenacity to walk a friend through grief. Um, but that being said, I also think that I was almost rejecting before I was rejected. Like I just, mm-hmm. I wasn't letting people in. I was scared of being a burden. And so I didn't, I didn't even you know, want to approach that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up feeling very alone. And then I also, I think I had friends who probably could have and would have been there for me that I just, you know, I just did that. I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. I did that thing. And um, to my detriment. 
Yeah. Um, I love how you interweave your own spiritual journey into the book. And one of the things, one of the ways that you do that is through the process of miscarriages and infertility. And you write, Christians don't like to sit with the idea that sometimes God doesn't save us from our pain. Mm -hmm. And when that inevitably happens, because pain and suffering are part of the human experience, we have a crisis of faith. And that idea that God doesn't save us from our pain, that's a very unchristian thing to say of uh christian that's just that's sacrilegious right i mean it does feel a little sacrilegious to say which is scary um because if if we can't say that sometimes god doesn't save us from our pain then what we're really saying is if god doesn't save us from our pain we've we have failed somehow we have you know that's that's the other side of that that if we don't believe that there is pain and suffering in the world, and it's and it's equally available to mm-hmm. to anyone, mm-hmm. um, then we've if we if we can't accept that, then uh, our only other alternative is to believe that by being good enough, we can somehow have God save us. And mm-hmm. I just don't believe that that's true. My experience tells me that is not true. I've seen. You, you and I have a mutual friend who was an amazing mother mm-hmm. who died of cancer, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and she was one of the best people I knew. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just, um, and yet, and yet, when she died, people had a crisis of faith. People around, you know, people around her had a crisis of faith. Um, I had a crisis of faith when I felt like things were not, you know, when I felt like, everything was going wrong. And I think, I think, I wish I would have in my religious upbringing, um, been given more permission to acknowledge the universality of suffering and, and to be prepared for it rather than thinking, well, you can just pray and, you know, God will take care of every, you know, every discomfort. Like, well, he'll comfort us. I I believe that. Um, but we might sit through some shit, (laughs) All of us, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you brought up that there's a sense that, man, if I could be good enough, then God will protect me either yeah. ahead of time or somehow rescue me in the midst sure. of that. But let's say I don't believe that, but then I just believe then that God is like not loving, right? Not mm-hmm. kind or not all powerful. Yeah. Like how do you how do you process through that in regard to the pain that you've experienced? I you know, I think that that is where that crisis of faith comes in because we we love to deal in opposites, don't we? And you know, it's like if if God isn't this, this God that maybe I learned in some prosperity gospel form of my religious upbringing, um, then I guess, you know, he must just be unmerciful and unloving. Mm -hmm. But I think what we have to relearn is that mercy and love and compassion don't always look like rescue from pain. And, you know, I think for those of us who are parents, it it is a little easier to conceptualize that because we, we don't do that to our own children. Right. We, you know, I've, had to sit with the discomfort of my own children and not rescue them from, you know, from, 
you know, heartaches that maybe are not life shattering, but to a 13 year old, they sure feel like it, you know? Um, And I can't always save them from their pain, but I can comfort them and I can love them. And I think, um, I think where that becomes really difficult for people is when they feel hurt by God or betrayed Mm -hmm. or let down um, to then move into a, a place of vulnerability of, okay, well, you didn't take the pain away but I'm going to let you comfort me, that's hard. That, that can be a really hard shift to, right. to say, I, I will trust you enough to comfort me, even if I don't feel like you're going to magically make everything be okay. And I think that's where we've got to come, is just being vulnerable with, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to lay it at your feet without expectation that you're going to intervene, Mm -hmm. but with the expectation that you will comfort because that's promised. That is Mm -hmm. promised. Mm -hmm. You know, a life of of pain and suffering is not promised, but God's comfort to us is always there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talk about in your book, the shift that you made a conscious choice to go kind of move beyond that external validation as a, as a mom. And you write that you made a conscious choice every single day to just be with my kids, just reading this book to them, just singing this lullaby, just lying here and cuddling. These things were thankless and they were immeasurable, but they were the work of motherhood in those years, not being a super mom, but being a mom who was present in the moments that matter. Um, And that is a huge theme of your book is saying that you have chosen to make certain things important. And you go later in the book into those exact things, which are, it's amazing list. We can talk about that later, but at what point did you, at what point in your four kids, uh, you know, did you kind of have that shift? Was it with the first one, second one, or was it a combination? You know, I mean, I think with the first one, I was, I, you know, I was still under the illusion that I could just do it all. And, um, you know, perform and I don't know, you know, have a Pinterest perfect life. Mm -hmm. And I think with the second one that, you know, bringing a second child home, I had a toddler and a baby was like, okay, like this is kind of breaking. But, you know, then I brought child three and four home within a few months of each other. Well, I birthed Karis and then her brother came home from Haiti um, and all of that happened in the course of a year. And that was when it was like, okay, this is just, this is, over, yeah. <laughs> this is chaos. This is chaos. And also, um, this isn't what my kids need from me. Like they don't need me to be a perfect PTA mom, or they don't need or care if, you know, their lunch is artistically created in a bento box. Now I want to say, if those are things that bring people life, they should right. do those things. Sure, of course. For me, they were exhausting me. And so those were some things that I said, I'm going to opt out of these things. I'm going to opt out of the things that for me feel like performative motherhood as opposed to present motherhood. Mm, yeah. And that's different from for every woman. And, right. you know, I, I think that's really important too. And I I feel like I harp on that in the book a lot. My my editor was like, you don't need, need to maybe repeat that again. I'm like, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that, you know, we're all different. And what feels performative to me may feel like self-care to someone else. Um, and we all have to kind of know ourselves. And what, and what feels like self-care to me might feel performative to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's just knowing it's knowing am i drained by doing this or am i do i feel like this gives me life or this mm-hmm. brings my family closer or this adds a benefit to the bonding in our family as opposed to is this the thing that i'm doing to make myself like look like a good mom yeah yeah um you started your blog in what year 2007 2007 so it's been about 13 years so yeah the kids were very young. Um, yeah. And some had, didn't even come into yes. the world prior to that. Yeah. yeah. Would, you, would you say that um, possibly there was more of a, um, whether it be a tendency or a, a feeling like that you needed to perform because you were choosing to, you know, create a, kind of a public... Um, perception of your family, you know, yeah, like and yeah, so where some moms they don't have that. You know what I mean? They're just yes. existing. Yes, um, do you feel like that that was more of a tendency for you because of that. Friend, if you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or have a side hustle, and you're having challenges growing your business, what if I told you that you are one call away from a breakthrough? One of the primary reasons. Why people work with me as a business strategist and coach is that I know how to get stuff done and I can teach you as well. If you're feeling stuck, you don't know what your next step is in business, you're trying to expand your business, you're trying to do marketing, you're trying to figure out strategy, I want to invite you to set up a free 20-minute clarity call so that I can understand more about your situation and see if you're a good fit for my one-on-one business strategy and coaching program. All you need to do is go to insporising.com slash call. That's insporising.com slash call. Yes. I mean, it was, it's, it drove me to blog and then that kept a hamster wheel running Mm -hmm. for sure. You know, it's, it's like when, I mean, and this is, you know, I, I know that there are different personalities and this is different for different people. If people are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a three. So, you know, I'm wired to want to produce and perform. That's how I feel okay about myself. (laughs) That's how I deal with my deep shame, Dave. Um, (laughs) But um, I do think that I, you know, I'm, I'm a young mom. I've come, I've pulled myself out of a career. I've pulled myself out of grad school. I pulled myself out of these settings where I could get a pat on the back you know, a a cookie, a star for being good. And now I'm just sitting at home with kids who just cry all the time. And, you know, I do think that there was a little bit of like, oh, what's this blogging thing? So I could kind of like show and tell on a blog and get people to like me on a blog um, and show that I'm a good mom and have someone tell me that. I mean, yeah, it's just me looking for external validation, very much so. Um, And then the problem there is then as that grows, Um, then you feel like you have to keep looking for that external validation. And then when that, you know, when that shifted over to being my livelihood and I was actually, you know, earning a a living, earning an income on the blog, then it really felt perform like performative motherhood. So it was weird because I'm preaching against performative motherhood and yet I'm in this hamster wheel of having to keep doing it kind of. And I think that is why, you know, for for people who've read my blog for a long time, I do think I shifted into more of a space of real vulnerability. And I really pushed back against, 
you know what, I'm not going to show like rosy colored photos. I'm not, you know, even if I do those things at home that, you know, like I'm going to make this a narrative of a struggling mom who doesn't have it figured out Mm -hmm. because that was the only truthful way I could do it. Mm -hmm. Why did you wait so long to write a book? You have had, (laughs) you know, pretty big success over the last decade. And why, why wait so long? Yeah, I'm, um, I have some, some folks at Convergent who have asked me the same thing. Um, I really, I just felt really overwhelmed by that. I did. And um, I, you know, I was offered a book deal without a, without a proposal um, several years ago. And um, I had an agent, I had an agent, and then I had another agent, like I had an agent who basically was like, so you're just never going to write a book. So maybe we should dissolve this contract. Um, I think I felt overwhelmed. I never, I never really saw myself as a writer. Um, I, I was a blogger, you know, but I, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it was a self-esteem issue. I think it was um, that sort of fear of being a fraud. Um, like, I, I, I'm not really a writer. I just like, I just have a blog, you know. I think it was some of that. And then I think by the time I was kind of ready to write the book, my life was imploding. I was going through a divorce. Mm-hmm. And it felt like this is not the time to throw myself into that. This is the time to hunker down, really be present with my kids as we kind of walk through that life transition. Um, and then it felt like once that, once we'd kind of found our new normal of, um, you know, living, you know, having a co-parenting family, mm-hmm. um, then it felt like, okay, now I can, now I can do this. Mm-hmm. Mm. You have a chapter um, that highlights a well-known Instagram account that you created, Asshole. Uh, what, what is the Asshole name? Parents? Yeah, it's just Asshole Parents. It's just course. Asshole Parents. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, tell me how this came about and how it has gained traction, or why do you think it's gained traction? Yeah, well, it came about. I mean, it was just, it truly was the most organic thing. It came about when I took a picture of my daughter mid tantrum, you know, she had her head down on the table, so she couldn't see me snapping a photo. But she like, the scenario was that, like, her her siblings were away at school, and she was feeling a little lonely. And so I created this like cute little lunch with her teddy bears. And I used all pink plates and, you know, made her lunch exactly how she loves it and let her wear princess dress, and set down a pink cup and I'd made her a pink smoothie. um, And then she burst into tears. And I'm like, what? And she was crying because there was a yellow straw in the pink cup. And she was just very offended by my lack of style um, and obvious, you know, disdain for her for giving her a yellow straw. So I just, you know, I'm sitting there going like, you know, at first, like feeling angry, like, are you freaking kidding me, you little brat, you know? And then I'm like, you just have to laugh. So I took a picture of it. I posted the story and I hashtagged it asshole parent because she thinks I'm an asshole for the yellow straw. And I mean, people were laughing and leaving their own comments. And then I just kind of, kind of, started using that hashtag myself. And then I noticed other people starting to use the hashtag. And then I thought, you know what, we need an account that's just curating all of this. Because I feel like parents need to know they are not alone in their kids like 
think, I mean, their kids being upset by ridiculous things Mm -hmm. because it's a universal parent thing. I I mean, especially that, you know, two to five set, it is universal that a child will cry because you give them a broken cookie or cry because you try to have them not put their finger in a socket, you know? Um, And I think it just, I think it became so popular so fast because it was such a departure from what we were being fed online by most influencers, which was these sort of like washed out ethereal photos of dreamy mother life, you know? And this was just kind of like, let's, let's talk about what it's really like, which is kids being mad at us over ridiculous things. I love the list that you um, created in the book. Some examples of how you've ruined your toddler's life, not allowing them to stand on the counter Requiring them to sit in car seats. Oh, every parent. Tyranny. Yes. Not allowing them to play with dog poop. That is, how dare you? I know. I'm a monster. Uh, Not allowing them to play with power tools. Um, (laughs) And then I love as you go older with the teenage years, um, here are a number of things that will really tick off a teenager. Making eye contact. Uh, Don't do that. Breathing. Mm Mm-hmm. Dressing like you're trying to be young and cool. <laughs> Dressing like you're old. Attempting to talk to them about crushes or life goals. Oh, my goodness. Cheering for them at a sporting event. So um, embarrassing. I love this one. Using memes or attempting to understand memes or simply saying the word meme. <laughs> yeah, my kids, I mean, it's so funny because it's like they're mad at you for not being cool. But if you make any effort to be cool, they're equally mad, right? Yeah. Like, like, oh my gosh, your music's so lame. And then so you try to put on like, you know, something they like and they're like, oh, mom's so dumb. <laughs> <This is laughs> it's like, you can't week. win. You can't win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A question for you on... Um, I I don't even know if I have the right language for it, but there is a movement uh, among parents to go uh, maybe in the other direction or concerned that you might be shaming um, your kids or other kids, you know, yeah. posting photos. Of yes. Them. How do you process that? If somebody said, man, I can't believe you would say that because ultimately your kid's going to see this photo, you know, later on, or they're going to see you taking the picture. You're shaming them. They're going to feel shamed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you had concerns about your own kid and how they would process that, you know, I I mean, I've always said, and one of the rules of the account has kind of been like, we're not, we don't accept videos. Like people try to send us videos. We're like, we're not about videoing a kid Mm -hmm. and we don't want it to look like a kid is like being caught, you know, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like it's supposed to be like, you know, a photo that you snap while they are unaware, while they are in the throes of a tantrum. Um, And then in terms of like kids seeing it or knowing, I I have always been really open with my kids. I mean, I wasn't showing them these photos when they were two and three, Mm -hmm. but I did, I stopped taking those photos when they were, you know, four or five. I mean, I think it's a small window where this sort of works. Although I'll take other photos that, you know, I'll then check in with them. Um, but my own kids think that that, that that account 
and that their presence on that account is so funny. Like they yeah. think it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then now, if I post an asshole parent photo, it'll it'll be more of an inside joke, and you know they they give me approval on what I post. Mm-hmm. They follow me and they let me know if you know <laughs> don't post that. There's a lot of that. If people don't know your family, one of the things that you share in the book is that you adopted two black boys and then mm-hmm. you um, gave birth to two white girls. Uh, and, you know, when you share about this experience, I'd love for you to talk about this for a little bit because um, some of the stories that you tell are just heartbreaking. You know, the basketball scene, maybe you can even just take us through that uh, moment um, at how this has accentuated or created and even heightened awareness for you of how people treat, you know, your kids differently and how treat people treat others differently. Would you mind taking us to that basketball scene for a moment and just giving people an overview of that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because <clears throat> I feel like the different, the disparities in how my boys are treated versus my girls has sort of changed um, as they've aged. And so, you know, the basketball scene I wrote in the book about is was really about younger kids. Um, two boys didn't want to hold hands with my boys because they were brown. Um, and then I talked to the parents of those children, and the parents were very defensive and said, you know, I don't know why he would have said that because we've always told him to never talk about race. Which, you know, the problem there is if you tell a child to never talk about race, then the message is that race is problematic. If they're not allowed to to talk about a skin color, then that skin color is scary or bad or problematic. You know, that's the messaging. And so, you know, do I think those little kids were racists? I don't. I just think that they'd gotten some weird messages and the, the parents just had a lot of defensiveness around talking about race. And the result of that is kids act in weird ways. When we can't be open and honest with them about race, they are going to learn and fill in the blanks just from what they're seeing in society, which is probably not the best. I mean, it's just like sex. It's like if you don't talk to your kids about sex, they're still going to learn about sex and their education is probably going to be terrible, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, You know, and so that I think that is that is more of like grouping and sorting and kids experimenting with exclusion. Mm -hmm. But it's been interesting as they've moved into teenage years, and what I'm noticing there is just how often they're looked at with suspicion by other adults and how often um, they are kind of questioned about, you know, should you be here or where are you going? Um, One of my sons was threatened with arrest for skating through a college campus that lies between his father's house and mine. So he was, you know, cutting through a college campus and was threatened to be arrested. Um, And, you know, he has friends who go and skate there all the time who are his age, 15-year-old white kids, and no one else I know has been threatened with arrest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just uh, I'm noticing the way the world treats them differently. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm noticing just the, the kind of bias that, you know, there is, you know, just a, a concern or assumption that, you know, maybe they're going to be involved in behavior that they shouldn't be. Um, when in reality, they're both, you know, really great kids. I mean, they're also really normal kids, you know, and also, you know, they also might break rules from time to time. And then it's a little scary because, you know, um, behavior that would be considered 
not great, but age appropriate, you know, yeah, sure. for them is suddenly like I had a teacher recently tell me about something one of my boys did and um, like they were goofing off during a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. And then she said, and then he fled the scene. Oh, and that's how she described him walking out of the frame of a Zoom call. Yikes. And it's just that kind of language where, and and it, that might sound paranoid, but when you hear that kind of language repeatedly yeah. towards two of your kids and never mm-hmm. to your other two, you know, just language, like kind of criminality language, like fled Harris, the scene. Harris fled the scene. I know. I'm like, he fled the scene to the other side of the living room. The room's not that big. Mm-hmm. Like, how big is the frame? How how hard can I flee yeah, yeah. out of this frame? Yeah. But, you know, just stuff stuff like that, that just these little microaggressions, you know, no one's walking up to them. And, well, they have been called the N-word, actually, um, mm-hmm. actually by peers in texts. That has certainly happened, too. Um, but, you know, almost as concerning is these microaggressions where had I called that teacher out, I'm mm-hmm. I'm sure she would have said, how dare you? That's not what I meant. Right. But I don't know. It's, it's tough. That is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do live in an area, unfortunately, where there are not a lot of black no. kids or black people at, at all. Uh-huh. You know, it's primarily yeah. Latino and yes. white, you know? Um, yes. So I see them uh, around skateboarding, you know, either by themselves or with friends. Yeah. And it is interesting. The, um, emotional or psychological reaction when I see them, um, I have a concern for them. Yeah. Like when I see them yeah. out, you know, and totally. I like, I feel very parental and I don't even know them that well. You know, my kids know your kids, but I don't, yeah. I don't really know them, but I feel very parental. Like, yeah. like if I'm around, I just feel like, I just want to see where they are. They okay? You know, <laughs> you know, because I totally. can imagine yeah. somebody saying or doing something really wacky, and they are Jack is a big kid. He is a big kid. And he looks like he's a lot older than he is. He does. He does. And we've had to have those talks, like you know, when kids are in, around the neighborhood, they like to do a, like neighborhood wide hide and seek. You know, we live on a little loop. And I'm like, boys, there is no way you're going to go hide in bushes in front of people's houses. Yeah, not good. At six foot tall. There's no way. Yeah, at dusk. Yeah, there's just no way. Or even, you know, I mean, we're in this, you know, season of a pandemic and, and, you know, they put masks on and my son, you know, went to go get food from the local high school and put a mask on and popped his hoodie up. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not a good look. Like, I know what that's going to lead people to think. Um, you know, and so then I'm finding him a surgical mask because I don't want him wearing a black mask. And it's it's all this tap dancing um, that shouldn't need need to be done. But and it needs to be it? done. Why do you do it then? To keep them safe. To keep them safe. And, that, and I want them to come home alive. And so, and it sucks because... Um, you have to make concessions that you shouldn't have to make because it's, it's just the most important that they come home safe. And so you, you know, you have to tell your kids that they can't ever mouth off at a cop. And if a cop is being disrespectful, we say all the time, don't get mad. We'll get even later. That's, that is our mantra. If you are in a situation with an abusive cop, you do not 
call them out. You don't mm-hmm. say anything. You mm-hmm. keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And then mom will hire an attorney. Sure. sure <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, but it's just, it, you know, rule number one is come home alive. Yeah. Hmm. And it's it sucks that a 13 and 15-year-old have to think about that. But they do. And, right. you know, you mentioned we live in Orange County. And that is difficult. And I've been really fortunate um, that they've been really embraced um, through the 100 Black Men organization. And so um, they're in mentoring programs with them. And so they have a lot of adult Black men kind of speaking into their lives. Um, because, you know, I, I mean, what are they going to listen to, white mom? Like, you know, they really need to get those lessons from other people who are, who are walking this. Mm-hmm. So that's been really helpful. Mm-hmm. You used a term on a different topic in the book, Uh, called dad privilege. (laughs) And uh, I talk about this on our podcast, you know, from time to time with moms, maybe uh, unpack that word for us. I'm sure the ladies listening will be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I I get that. But what is dad dad privilege and how, how did you experience it? Yeah. I mean, I experienced dad privilege. I mean, I, I, I opened that chapter with a scene of um, when I was married still, you know, we were sitting down there at Christmas morning and the kids are opening the gifts and, um, my ex-husband is, you know, at every gift, like, oh my gosh, you got, you know, a Dora doll. That's so cool. Oh my gosh, you got a scooter. That's so cool. And I realized halfway through, like, he actually hasn't seen any of these gifts. Like he, he actually doesn't know what is wrapped under the tree. He is experiencing all of this in real time because I bought, I planned, I wrapped, like all of it was pulled off by me. Um, and that's just a little example of, you know, some of that invisible work, um, and it's a small example, but it's that invisible work that women do, mm-hmm. that we do because we intuitively know to do it because we, our mothers did it. And it looks like, you know, when you get the email um, that they need, you know, a black long sleeve t-shirt for their drama performance, and they don't have one, you go and order it. Or when you get the email that the soccer team needs to have this color, you know, socks and shin guards, you go and grab that. Or when you get the soccer schedule, you put it all in the calendar. Or when there's a class party, you go ahead and order the thing that you need for the class party. And like, my experience, both personally, and in pretty much every friend I know is that it's the women doing this invisible work. Mm -hmm. um, That if men and and it's not that I think that men are entitled assholes. I actually think that this is much more of a systemic issue where our dads didn't do this work. Right. Therefore, men are not aware of this work. And women have been socialized to not talk about this work because we might sound like we're nagging, which, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been trained as, you know, that's the very worst thing that you could do would be to nag your man because, goodness, I mean, then he'll grow tired of you and leave or something. I don't know. Um but, but, you know, it's just this is stuff that's really kind of not on men's radars. Um, and and they're not – I think that it's just – it's kind of a muscle that has not been developed by a lot of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then they might say, well, just make me a list. Like, make me a list. Um, but the problem there in the making of the list is the onus still goes back to us to sort of like – you know, re- request and supervise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's still our mental load if we're making the list. Right. I and a lot of times... I, go, I will go shopping. Give me yeah. the list. She goes, I don't want 10 calls from yes. here at the grocery store. I don't yeah. want that. I'd rather just go do it myself. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, what I, what I want, and I say this all the time in my house too, is like, I don't want to be the only one doing all the thinking. Like I want someone else to open the fridge, 
take the inventory all to the to the same level that I would and then go and do it and just show up with it the same way I would because I wouldn't make any phone calls if I went grocery shopping, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think, you know, I, and I don't want to sound like I'm bashing men. I just really think we're in a weird sandwich generation Mm -hmm. where we, so many of us, we want to be in egalitarian marriages. A lot of us have that goal. We have, you know, maybe we have two working parents or two working spouses. Um, The problem is for so many of us, we didn't watch our parents have an egalitarian marriage. And I mean, the unfortunate truth of marriage is we so often in many ways revert to the behavior of our parents, of what was modeled. And I just think we, um, we're forging a new path here and we're having to learn new behaviors that weren't modeled to us. And, and a lot of it, unfortunately, the learning curve is for the men to step up, but then for women to step back because mm-hmm. it doesn't work unless we step back too. Right, right, right. Yeah. You were uh, very transparent about your uh, marriage and divorce and mm-hmm. the how obviously how painful that was. Um, and I was, you know, interested in how you feel comfortable sharing openly your part, but yet it, at the same point, it's kind of sharing his part too. Um, and yet you're also saying, well, this is how he perceives me, you know, so you're kind yeah. of taking part. It, it's a very interesting chapter um, in terms of you balancing I don't even know if balancing is the right word, but maybe navigating through all of those emotions and feelings. Um, And one of the things that you share is how difficult it was to go Christian blogger, mom, and then, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to go public. Then I go public. I mean, I don't even know what my question is. It's just such a, So I can't even imagine the pain and anguish and the process. You know what I mean? Yeah. At at what point did you finally say, okay, I'm going to go public with this. I'm going to tell people. Mm -hmm. Um, Too late, to be honest. I mean, the point at which I went public was when there were just rumors. I mean, there were rumors that I was dating someone and there were rumors that my husband was on dating sites. and, And those things were true. The, the issue was that we'd been divorced for a year and a half, you know, and no one knew that. Mm. And so I was, um, you know, I, and it's not that I really wanted to be secretive. It's that, again, I was in that stage of really wanting to hunker down and focus on my kids. Mm. And I didn't want to be focused on managing a narrative. Mm. Um, I mean, Anyone who was paying close attention, Mark had been off my social media for three, four years, mm-hmm. you know? And so, I, and I think that many people, you know, who were paying close attention knew that we were no longer together. Um, but, you know, there were just rumors swirling and it's like I, I wasn't ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And um, it, there just became this disparity of my real life where my close friends all knew everything and they knew my boyfriend and, you know, everything was kosher. And then, you know, just people who didn't know me and then the rumor mill. So um, I had that I really was kind of forced to address it. Um, I didn't want to, but my, my friends were like, you gotta, you gotta talk about this because Mm -hmm. I'm getting like close friends of mine were, you know, getting people in their ear, like, so is Kristen, you know, 
And it's like, okay, my friends were like, okay, we've got to do this. And like, literally gave me a deadline. Like, you're going to write this and talk about it by wow. this day. Mm. So, um, because I just wanted to crawl in a hole. And I, you know, and it was embarrassing. I, I felt shame about having a divorce. Because um, I was a marriage and family therapist for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then, yeah, and then in the in the process of even how to write about that and how much... Um, is appropriate to share um, because, you know, it'll it's on the internet and my kids will read it someday. And if my kids were grown, I think that what I shared would have been very different than, you know, what I did share. Mm. Um, but then, yes, in the writing of the book, just not, not, you know, not wanting to go into details. And I think I'm equally hard on myself in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I own my you parts. Do. Yeah, you do a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I worked hard on that chapter. Probably, you know, I probably had more eyeballs on that chapter than any other just mm-hmm. asking friends like, hey, am I being fair? Am I being, you know, am, am I throwing him under the bus? Am I being, you know, like I just really wanted to be fair mm-hmm. um, and tell Mark, this story. Did Mark read it beforehand? He, um, no, he didn't want to read it. No. Yeah. So he Mm-mm. chose just – you gave him the option, but he chose I not to. I definitely – requested he read it many many times interesting <laughs> he, he chose not to okay interesting yeah. yeah um and uh okay no more questions on that <laughs> 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 yeah very uh, fascinating yeah no i thought you were very gosh the, the there are not words to you know i think of the word fair-handed but you know like you said you you really did navigate that i thought uh, very well thank you um, one last quote that I want to end with, and it's actually the last lines of the book. And um, and for those of you who li- are listening, Kristen's um, exploration of the things that I'm bringing up just pales in comparison to how she eloquently uh, takes you through the journey in the book. So please don't feel like you've 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 only gotten like a half of one percent of our conversation. You need to get the book for sure. Um, so you write at the at very end. You say the more we can tell our truths, especially the hard and uncomfortable ones, the less alone and broken we'll feel. Perhaps there is less wrong with us and more wrong with the expectations we've put on ourselves. Perhaps we're good enough just as we are. Yeah, and um, that is, I wrote that for me as much as for anyone else. That's still an ongoing challenge for me. That, you know, I mean... um, I think it's true. I think it's true cognitively. But, you know, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's almost a discipline to just be okay. Mm. It is for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Rage Against the Minivan, Learning to Parent Without Perfection. Kristen, uh, wow, I, bestseller, without a doubt. People, it'll be a bestseller somehow, some way. People are going to love it. Yeah, it's really, really good and encourage people to pick it up. It comes out on June 9th. June 9th. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which sure we'll release the podcast on that day. We'll make it, we'll make it easy for you. It'll be available on Amazon. Of course you can, I'm sure you can pre-order it now. So Kristen, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks Dave. It was fun to talk to you. If you found this episode inspiring or helpful, please share it with a friend, take a screenshot, text it to them Tell them to search for and subscribe to the Inspiration Rising podcast 
on their favorite podcast app. It might be Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, Google, any of those. Tell them to search and click subscribe. Also, if you want to receive my daily inspirational text messages, text me now at 949-401-6090. That's 949-401-6090. If you forgot the number, you don't want to hit rewind. It's in the show notes. You can swipe up on your phone, say, hello, Dave, and then I'll add you as a contact. And hey, you'll get inspirational text messages every day. It'll be awesome. All right. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week.